For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, <clears throat> where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. I woke up, and honestly, I didn't know if anyone was going to be here, because last week we started a series called Money Matters. It's a sermon series that we were going through and addressing the topic of money, which I realize is, there's a little bit of feedback coming through. Eric, could you dial that back? Um, I realize money tends to be pretty low on our favorite things to talk about list. Uh, not, not very many people wake up and say, man, I just can't wait to get to church to hear, hear the pastor talk uh, about money. But if you read through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, following him through the 33 years, well, it's mostly the three and a half years of, of Jesus' life and ministry, you, you'll realize that the topic of money wasn't an issue for Jesus. Last year we talked about this, that, that nearly 15% of, every, uh, 15% of all the words that came out of Jesus' mouth related to money in some way, shape, or form. And here in Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of the most famous sermon of all time, right? This is like, if there was a blockbuster chart of best sermons, this would be number one every, across every board. Jesus addresses money at length. And what he's doing here, what we have to realize is Jesus is making a much-needed course correction to our relationship with money, because the reality is that nobody has a healthy relationship with money by default. It doesn't happen. Nobody wakes up and just like, I've got all of my money problems are solved. I know how to navigate life. I know how to handle my money in the wisest fashion. And, and, and unfortunately, the places where we typically go to learn about money only compound the dysfunction and confusion that surrounds the topic of money. It either makes us into materialistic and indulgent people where we're spending, spending, spending. We got money, we might as well spend it. Or we go on the other side or the other ditch of that and we become financial prudes where we're hoarding our money and tucking it away. We're saving. Now, I'm not speaking against spending money. I'm not speaking against saving money. But what Jesus, and Jesus actually doesn't do that either, what Jesus is offering is a better alternative, a better perspective on money. He's offering one that's liberating instead of feels like bondage. He's offering one that invokes joy instead of misery. And so that's what we're in pursuit of in this sermon series. We want to, to rediscover. We want to, we want to adopt Jesus' perspective on money and make it our own. And so if you would open up with me to Matthew chapter 6, 
Uh, if, if you don't have a Bible with you, the Pew Bible is in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, uh, that Bible now is yours. You can take that home with you. That's on page 473. And I just want to take a look here. Uh, what we're going to look at is verses 22 and 23. We started with, with verse 19 last week, and we're sort of making our way through here. And here in verse 22, Jesus says this. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. Now at first glance, this, this, these couple verses might seem more like a, a lesson in optometry. Right? He's talking about the eyes, a healthy eye. And actually, it's an illustration that's pretty straightforward. Jesus is contrasting between the difference of a healthy eye and an unhealthy eye. Like, like This is pretty elementary stuff. We know that if our eyes are healthy, then light is allowed to come into our eyes. Our brain processes the light, and it allows us to make sense of the world and navigate around what's before us. But if our eye is bad, if it doesn't allow the light to come in, and it doesn't matter, there could be all the light in the world right around us, but if our eye is bad, it doesn't let it come in, then we're filled with darkness. And this darkness is a risky place to be. It impairs the way that we navigate. And parents know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? You experience this at 3 a.m., you wake up, your kid's crying, and you're you're, you're out of it. Like, I know this. You're, you're out of it. Your eyes are all kind of blurry. You can't really see. It's dark out. You're navigating down the hallway. Open the door to the bedroom. Boom. Step on a Lego. <laughs> you know, step on a tray. I don't know why they make toys so painful to step on. But parents, know. You know what I'm talking about here. There, there's major risk involved if our eyes aren't letting light in. Now, certainly in this little parable, Jesus, uh, or this, this proverb, Jesus is doing more than warning us about stubbing our toes in the middle of the night. Jesus is using this simple illustration to help us realize that we might be navigating life blindly. That, that your eyes might be physically open. You might be able to see your surroundings but you lack the perspective to see things correctly, to see reality as it really is. Now, you might be wondering, what, what does this have to do? What does this talk about the I have to do with the topic of money? Because if you look at these two verses, not one single time is money mentioned. Now, here's where we're introduced to the genius of Jesus. It's, it's not so much what he says, but how he situates what he says. If you look before this little snippet, these couple verses, if you look before and after, he surrounds this in the context of money. In verses 21 and 22, the passage that we looked at last week, Jesus tells us that, that you have one of two options, that you either invest your money in earth on, in the place where, where raw, wrath, rust and moth can destroy where thieves break in and steal, or you can invest it in heaven, where it's safe and secure, where that, that, that sort of corruption doesn't happen. 
And then if you go down to verse 24, uh, following this little passage here, he, he says, well, here's one of two options here. You, you either serve God or you serve money. Jesus frames this up in sort of a, a money sandwich. And so when we look at this passage in its context, this is clearly a passage about money. And what it's showing us is that we really have two choices to make in life when it comes to money. We choose where to invest it, either in heaven or in earth, and we choose what to serve. We either serve God or we serve money. Now, when you frame it up like that, it sounds like a pretty black and white question, right? The options are pretty black and white. It's an obvious choice. I, I wanna, obviously, I don't want my money to, to burn up like nothing, I want to put it in a place where it's going to last for a long time. And obviously, I don't want to be a slave to money. I'd rather serve God. So it's an obvious choice. But in actuality, actually making that decision in our life can be incredibly difficult. Now, it's like shooting three-pointers. The NCAA tournament's going on right now. I mean, seeing these highlight clips of these college kids just like standing behind the arc, just draining threes all day long. It's really impressive to watch these athletes do what they do. In theory, shooting three-pointers is really easy, right? You got a ball, you put it through the hoop. Easy theory, right? Easy, easy option. But actually doing it, actually standing behind the arc and shooting is quite a challenge, and what Jesus is showing us here is that, that making this decision, actually doing this, is difficult because money blinds us. It's like trying to shoot three-pointers point, blindfolded. And unless you're Steph Curry, that's a pretty difficult feat. Money distorts our perspective, which impairs us as we navigate this life, but it also has huge implications on the next life. And unlike physical blindness, which is really obvious, right? It, it's, if you're blind, if you're physically blind, it's really obvious, right? You can't see nothing. But money blindness isn't necessarily that obvious. It's, it's oftentimes very subtle, it's not that we can't see anything that is a complete blackout. Instead, money, money blindness is a gradual hazing and narrowing of your vision. Right, right? It's this idea that, that the periphery is very hazy and that just keeps getting hazier and hazier until all you can see is what is right before you and ultimately it comes down to you. Now, this is the essence of greed. That's, that's what we're talking about, the essence of greed. Money blinds us to our greed. We have this perspective that money is mine, and, and in that sort of claiming of our own possessions, we tend to have our view distorted of others. We, we don't see them, and then our vision narrows in on myself. And if, undre, undre, un, if this goes unaddressed, then eventually we will end up completely blind. We'll be like Scrooge. And Jesus says, man, what a, what a great darkness that is. That's a, a debilitating way of navigating life. That's stepping on a lot of Lego pieces. 
very confusing. It's painful. And, and what it shows us how, is how empty and how tragic a greedy life can be. Now, nobody wants that, right? That, that's the opposite of, of what we really want to experience in life. We want to live the good life. In fact, that's what Jesus came to offer us, to live life and to live it abundantly. But oftentimes, our, our view is so distorted that we can't differentiate between the good life that Jesus offers us and, and the good life that money wants to offer us. So what I want to do, I want to take this time, and I hope this is really practical, helping you identify the places in your life where, where money blindness might be surfacing. So I want to show you four ways that money can be distorting your vision and creating a great darkness. Now, note takers, this is your jam. I usually don't preach sermons like this with four points, but I'm going to do this, so if you've got notes, this is your day. The first thing I want to show you is that money can blind you to your blindness. Now, in Luke chapter 11, Luke records some of the same words that we see here in Matthew 6, where we see this idea of the eye is the lamp of the body. And then in chapter 12 of Luke's gospel, he goes on to warn. He kind of carries on this topic of money and greed, and he goes on to warn, watch out for greed. He says, watch out. That, that, that's, that's the warning. Watch out. Be on guard of materialism. Now, it's interesting because Jesus doesn't say that about very many other sins. Right? He doesn't say, watch out. You might be committing adultery. No, if, if you're committing adultery, you, you know you're committing adultery. You, you don't get out of bed and be like, oh, that wasn't my spouse. It's not a surprise. It's very obvious. It's a very apparent sin that's right in front of your, your face. But greed is much different. Greed hides itself. Greed goes incognito. It flies under the radar. And that is why you have to be on guard because it can sneak into your life without even realizing it. If you don't see your tendency, this is, this is the human tendency is greed, right? You don't have to teach a kid how to say mine, right? You don't have to teach them how to be selfish. That's their natural fallen disposition in life. And so if you don't see your own tendency towards greed, then that means you are blind to your blindness. And here's how I know that's true. Now, I have meetings with people often. People say, hey, Pastor Sam, um, I've got some sin. I'm struggling in this particular area. I'd like to talk through it. I'd like to, to hear, uh, to, be, to be discipled in this. I want, I, want to, I want to process and confess this sin so I can grow out of it. Now, typically, the topics that this relates to, anger, lust, pride. And in the seven years of ministry, there has never been a conversation where somebody says, hey, Pastor Sam, I need to, we need to sit down. I got this greed issue that I just need to confess. Like, no, nobody says, hey, I need to confess my tendencies toward materialism. Not one conversation. Now, we're slow. We're just slow to confess 
the sin of greed. We're slow to repent of the sin of greed because usually most people don't think of themselves as greedy people. We just don't. We, we tend to, to frame ourselves up in a more generous and positive light. We can, we can maybe even go back and trace a couple places in our life where we've practiced generosity, where we sort of refute that idea. But, but in the day-to-day, the general, life in general, we don't realize our tendency for greed. So if you're, if you're sitting here and you're listening and you're thinking, man, that's, that's not my issue, that's a bad sign. In fact, that's, that's the number one symptom of money blindness. Pastor Sam, that's, that's not me. That might be somebody else. If this is the case, the chances are you're money blind. You're, you're blind to your own blindness. So that's the first one. The second way that money blinds us, money blinds you to your purpose in life. Now, I, I remember having career day in middle school. I think this is a pretty common practice where parents come in, they share a little bit about their professions and what they do, uh, different career paths that are available, trying to like spark some interest in the kids. Um, and what I noticed in my experience of this was, was not, the kids weren't necessarily interested in the occupation itself. What they were most fascinated with was the appearance of the parent that came up and presented their occupation. Here's what I mean. They were interested in what clothes they were wearing. So if somebody was coming in and say, hey, I work, uh, I work in maintenance, and they're wearing a, a maintenance you know, uniform, kids tended to not be as interested in those occupations because they equate this sort of appearance with, you know, oh, it's, it's not making the good money. They, they, they were drawn toward those people wearing suits, Dresses, people who had a career that, that they had to dress up for and, and an indicator of financial lucrativeness of that profession. Now, although that's, it's a little bit different nowadays because you, if you're working for, if you're a CEO of a comfort company, you can wear whatever you want. You don't have to wear a suit and tie, right? But there's this idea that I want to have a good job where I can make good money so I can get the stuff that I want. And so careers are being chosen not by a vocation that utilizes my giftings, not not a vocation that I would be fulfilled in working in for many, many decades. Instead, careers are being chosen by what pays good. Now, some of you might, might have taken that approach. And I bet you could probably attest to that. Once you get into the 10-year mark of this, this vocation, you know, it, it worked out for a while. You could grind it out. You could, you could spend a few years feeling pretty good about it because you're making good money. But eventually, you come to the point where you start to feel kind of empty. The, the work isn't fulfilling you. You know, even with this bigger paycheck that you chose to, 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 to take with this vocation, it's not satisfying you. And instead of taking a pay cut and doing something that we really enjoy while providing for our families, instead of doing something that we've been wired to do and utilize the giftings and character that God has given us, we settle for a lousy job with a big paycheck. Now, why would we do this? Why? 
Why would we take a profession that, that diminishes our quality of life? It's because money has blinded us. See, we were made for more than making a good living. If that's, if that's the aim in life, to make a good living, all that makes us is consumers. People who are making money so we can turn around and go spend it on something else. And if the rat race in life is being the man with the most toys, that's an awful goal. I'm just going to say, that, that is a terrible aim in life, to be the man with the most toys. Because number one, it's impossible to win that game. Somebody is always going to have more stuff than you, and it's going to be cooler than the stuff that you have. And two, it's completely unfulfilling. Because it always requires getting more. You get one thing, six months later, you need the next thing. It's the cycle of replacing what you have to try to find that fulfillment. See, but when, when our eyes are open, when we're not blind to money, we can find contentment in the stuff that we have. We, we can find contentment in doing satisfying work, even if that means we take a pay cut. We can work a more fulfilling job and live on less, living within our means, and in doing so, we can improve our quality of life. Now, this is, this is countercultural. Right? Everything else in this world says, go, go get it. Go get, that, go get that pay raise. Go find the better job. Upgrade your position so you can upgrade your life. But that's not Wisdom. And it's interesting, there, there's, there's people, like, I don't know if you know Gary Vee, he, he's, he's an entrepreneur, he's really big on social media, giving young people the ability to, like, sort of pursue and chase their dreams. And this is one thing that, that he notes, he, he's not a Christian, but he's saying this, that, that there's wisdom in taking a lower-paying job and doing something that you find satisfying than there is taking the job with a paycheck and being miserable. He said, that is how you find enjoyment and contentment in life. And what keeps people from, from taking these less paying but more fulfilling jobs in life is the pursuit of maintaining a lifestyle. See, that's number three. Money blinds us from our lifestyle choices. Do you realize that you are being marketed to every minute of the day? It, it used to be like commercials on television, billboards, but, but now with social media, it's everywhere, constantly being pumped that, that your, your living, your lifestyle isn't quite there. There's still another step. There's something else to maintain. Now, and this can come from one that has origins in one of two places. This is either an internal desire for us to, to pursue my life dream, right? The life dream that we had when we were 21 years old, graduated from college, oh, I'm gonna get this degree, I'm gonna make a ton of money and we're gonna just live it up big. Right, it's chasing this internal dream that we have or it's enforced by external motivations. 
It's an impulse to keep up with the Joneses, to keep up with the latest Instagram trend. This means we want to have certain amenities in our life, certain, certain luxuries. We want, to, we want to, a certain house in a certain neighborhood. We want to have a certain type of vehicle. We want a certain kind of technology. Our clothes need to be a particular brand. The food that we eat needs to be a particular brand. It means having the, the subscriptions that we want, having a certain decor in our homes. It means having the sort of spending budget that we want, taking the vacations that we desire. That, that all goes into the type of lifestyle that we're trying to maintain. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to have nice stuff. Like it, it, it's a good thing. Like if you can have nice stuff and enjoy it and be content with it, that, that's a good thing. But the problem is that our lifestyle is constantly begging to be upgraded. It, it's, it's always saying, you know what, you know, take that next step. Find, get the next thing. Upgrade just a little bit. You, so much so that, that when you get a raise, when you get your tax return, you've already, in your mind, spent that money. Oh, these are the things that I wanted to get. Right, you got a 55-inch TV, now you need the 83-inch TV. Why stop at one? Let, let's put a TV in every room. you got to keep your home decor up to snuff with Joanna Gaines. And I'm telling you, that's a dangerous game. <laughs> your one-week vacation needs to become a, a two-week vacation. It's this never-ending pursuit of maintaining or upgrading our lifestyle. And what money blindness does, it keeps us from asking the hard questions about our lifestyles. It, it keeps us from holding up the magnifying glass and inspecting, is this really what I need? That's the question. Do I really need this? Do I need to spend this much on my mortgage? Do I need to spend this much on my car or my vacations or my clothes? See, the question that we normally ask is, can I buy this? And, and even then, even then, that, that question doesn't even matter because even if you can't buy that, you got credit. See, if you're not making a conscious decision about your lifestyle, if you're not asking that question, do I really need this and saying yes and no to those things? Because there could be both. And maybe it's not just even need, but is this a wise way to spend my money? If you're not asking those questions, that's a sign that money has made you blind. Now, let me, let me just ask this question. Because I think this is revealing here. What if, what if God is calling you, calling us to use our gifts, our talents in a different job that would make less money? What, what if God is calling us to a more fulfilling job that would make less money, and then he says, you know what, and I want you to live within your means? What would that look like? That might look like God saying, hey, maybe, 
Maybe you live in a different neighborhood than what you initially wanted to live in. Maybe the house you live in isn't quite moving ready yet. Maybe it means driving a more modest vehicle. What if God were asking us to do that? And not only to do that, but then to give some of the stuff away that we don't need. If he's calling us to be content with what we already have and in being content, that actually makes us more generous people. Do you you think, does that scenario, does that sound like your quality of life could improve? I think for most of us, it's really hard to imagine. Right? It sounds like it sounds like we're being demoted, even. It's like I can't imagine my life without this stuff. I can't, I can't imagine life without maintaining this kind of lifestyle. And, it, and if this is a hard vision to imagine and to say, you know what, maybe, maybe that's even true to some degree. I'm not saying you need to pack up a move or whatever. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. But our hesitancy to see that that could be more fulfilling reveals to us what we ultimately treasure. That this life means more to us than the next. Hey, Tyler, I think there's a slide that I put up last week. I don't know if you can find it with the dot, the line. It's green. I don't know. If you were here last week, maybe, yeah, right there. Boom. Thanks, Tyler. See, when that sounds absurd to us, that that probably means that that we're living for the dot, right? You see how finite life is? That's your whole life summarized in one blob of ink. And, And there's this whole other line that points forward into eternity, and here we are. It's like, I, I don't see myself being able to, to sacrifice for eternity. I, I, I want to I maintain the dot. See, if this is the case, then money has blinded you to what is ultimately worth treasuring. It has made your vision short and narrow. You can't see past the temporary gain to gain the eternal treasure. And if that's the case, then this is as good as it gets. No wonder why Jesus said, how great the darkness. I I don't... If you're living for the dot, everything that you're chasing now is going to end up in a landfill. We can be blind to the ultimate treasure. Now, when Jesus came, one significant thing that he did was restore sight to the blind. I don't know. Maybe you're feeling convicted right now. You feel, oh, man, it's pretty obvious that I've got some money blind. It sounds like my eyes are sort of clouded over. I can't really see the world around me. I can't see past that dot into the eternal future. Good news, folks. You follow Jesus through the Gospels, he's healing people's blindness left and right. 
In fact, this is the sign of the kingdom of God breaking in, where people's sight is being restored. Now think of this. Even the apostle Paul. Paul wasn't blind initially. But Jesus made him blind so that he could heal his blindness later on. The way that our sight is restored is by having a genuine encounter with Jesus. Now, in Luke chapter 19, there's a story about somebody, maybe like the epitome of money blindness, this little man named Zacchaeus. You're all probably familiar with Zacchaeus. He's a wee little man. Wee little man was he. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And he had a terrible case of money blindness, and he was... He was left. He knew the bleakness of the darkness. Nobody liked him. His money blindness had, had honed in his vision, made it so narrow, so hazy, that all he could see was him, himself. Now, it's so interesting in the story. What does Zacchaeus want to do? He wants to see Jesus. But guess what? He's too short. He's too short. His vision is obstructed. So what does he do? He climbs up the tree. And as he's sitting in this tree, Jesus is passing by. And something interesting happens. It doesn't note that Zacchaeus saw Jesus. Jesus saw Zacchaeus. Jesus looks up in the tree, and he sees this poor, depleted soul of a man named Zacchaeus, and he looks at him and says, Zacchaeus, I, gotta, I have to come. I must come to your house today. Now, it's almost as if Jesus, the whole purpose of Jesus' trip was to come by and see Zacchaeus. And, and, and Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' home, which catches a lot of flack for that, because people are like, all the religious people are like, how dare you spend time with a sinner like that? And as Jesus stands in Zacchaeus' living room, as, he, as he's standing in the middle of the home that's got all kinds of possessions, all sorts of things that he's been accumulating through his life, Everything that he's been sacrificing relationships for in order to pursue those things, he has this revelation. He sees this stuff that I was treasuring, that's nothing. It's rubbish. And for the first time, Zacchaeus sees clearly. He sees Jesus for who he is. He, he, his money blindness has been cured. Because now he's able to say, you know what, this, this stuff that I've accumulated, I don't want anything to do with it. Jesus is now my treasure. Tim Keller says, the Bible says every treasure but Jesus will insist that you die to purchase it. But Jesus himself is the one treasure who died to purchase you. See, Jesus showed us how much he treasured us because the next part of that, that passage is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. You have to, to be able to seek something out, you've got to be able to see it. Jesus saw us in our predicament, in our money blindness. 
He saw us stumbling around. He said, I'm going to seek you out. I'm going to retrieve you and rescue you. And I'm going to show you how I'm going to do that by, by treasuring you. I'm going to live the perfect life and die the death that you deserve. See, if, if you follow greed to its end, it, it might as well end with a, crucif- a crucifixion. It, it's a dark ending. But Jesus said, I'm going to show you how much I cherish you, and I'm going to get up on that cross in your place. That he literally had the riches of heaven, an eternal relationship with God the Father, and he willingly gave that up. He wasn't tight-fisted around what he had. He was open-handed. He gave it up. And he did so that you could gain him your ultimate treasure. Now, Zacchaeus' money blindness was healed. He, he, he walks away from that encounter with Jesus, and he's a changed man. In fact, Zacchaeus now becomes, if at, at the beginning of the story, Zacchaeus had dark, unhealthy eyes, now Zacchaeus has good, healthy eyes. He's an example of what it means to have the good eye. And in fact, the Greek word good has a double meaning. It means healthy, but also it means generous. Now that Jesus is Zacchaeus' ultimate treasure, he can part ways with the other stuff that he was holding on to so tightly that prevented him from enjoying relationships with other people. The story goes on. Zacchaeus gives fourfold restitution. Whoever he defrauded, if, I, if he unlawfully or, or uh, greedily took $100 from you, he's going to give you $400 back. He, he, re, he, he makes restitution for everyone he's defrauded. And then with what he's left with, he gives away half of it to the poor. That's a good eye. And Jesus looks at what Zacchaeus does and he says, today salvation has come to this house. Faith in Jesus has economic implications. See, Zacchaeus knew the generosity of Jesus. It was a, he didn't know what Jesus was gonna do on the cross yet. But the fact that Jesus was generous with his time for an undeserving sinner, that's generous. He experienced that generosity, and now it made him generous. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about generosity, there's always this this initial question that kind of like pops up. It's like, how much? What is generous? Give me a number. I'm not going to give you a number. But what we can do is look at Jesus to find that question. Look at Jesus and examine how much he treasured you. Jesus was sacrificially generous. That that he generously bore the cross for us. And so when you see that, when you see what Jesus has done for you, Does that instill generosity and and sacrificial giving in you? Does that reorient your lifestyle? Does that that cut into your quality of life, or not the quality of life, but the, the lifestyle you're trying to maintain? 
See, this is what it looks like for us to bear an economic cross. It's, it's not just a matter of bearing the cross in our relationship with other people. If you're not responding to Jesus as he responded to you, You're not responding to Jesus. Jesus has treasured you. You're missing something. Because Zacchaeus has the right reaction. He, in fact, it's as if he's, he's singing this anthem. We sing it. It's an old hymn. Jesus paid it all. We say, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. See, that's, that's the anthem of somebody who has encountered Jesus, that we are able to say, Jesus is the ultimate treasure. It's, it's like we sang this morning, take the world, but give me Jesus. See, when we encounter Jesus, he transforms our greedy tendencies into generosity. And in our generosity, not only are we called into the mission of God as missionaries, but our generosity helps fuel the mission so that we can perpetuate the generosity of God and reach more and more people so they too can inter- interact and have an encounter with Jesus. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And if this doesn't make sense to you, that's fine. Honestly, I don't want your money. The church doesn't want your money. If this is something like, ugh, How could God cut into my life like that? It's okay. You obviously don't get it yet, and that's fine. And I hope that you just keep coming back so more and more you can can catch more and more glimpses so you can almost, you get there, you can have an encounter with Jesus so that that closed-fistedness can be opened up, that the, the money blindness might transform into perceiving and seeing reality as Jesus does. So you can say, my ultimate treasure is Jesus. This morning we come to the Lord's table. And this is a visual, physical reminder of the length that Jesus went to sacrifice for us. He didn't, Jesus, listen, Jesus didn't give us 10% of himself. He gave it all. His body was broken. His blood was spilled. This is the generosity of God. And as we partake in this, this meal helps us. It transforms us. When you are reminded of the generosity of Jesus over and over and over again, from the inside out, this changes us into a more generous people, people who can see clearly. I know I need it. You're not alone. If you're feeling, you're not alone. Let's grow together. Say, man, I want a clear vision. I want to see Jesus. I want Jesus to be more beautiful. Let's come. If you're hungry, come and eat with us. Father, we thank you for your gospel this morning. We thank you of the picture of generosity that you have given us in Christ. It's not, it's hard to believe that somebody would go to such lengths of leaving heaven, giving up every single thing so that we might encounter and experience the benefits of your generosity. So Father, we thank you for Jesus. We ask God that you would open our eyes to see, that we might see you, that we might treasure you as you have treasured us. We ask for the Spirit's help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
The men who are serving would come forward.